One. There we are. Um, okay, um, Ian is going to come and, and preach. Now, um, many of you will recognize Ian. Some of you won't. Ian um, has been around for a year and a half. Is that right? Yep, about a year and a half. Um, down um, based at the um, site that meets at Skinner Street. Uh, Ian came on staff in January, so I've been working the office. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, what's it been like working with me and the others in the office? Uh, amazing, of course. Yeah. Uh, no, it's been really good. These guys have uh, welcomed me very well and I um, feel like I'm settling in now. So it's, it's just lovely to be here, actually. Uh, having like five or six weeks in the office, coming in and setting out chairs and doing all that kind of thing, to now being able to come here and meet you properly. So there are a few stories about me in the sermon this morning as illustrations, and they're just kind of by way of getting to know you. I'm not that into myself, okay? It's just... <laughs> Um, great, it's also brilliant to have Lindsay with us as well. Lindsay, you can give us a little wave. And then a slightly bigger wave. And then <laughs> the biggest wave you got. <laughs> that's fine. Um, good, who would like to hear Ian preach? Yeah. Thank, uh, thanks, Dan. That's fortunate, isn't it? Uh, let's just pray. Lord God, we, we thank you that we can come and hear your words. We can come and know your truth being spoken to us. And I pray for Ian this morning that you would be anointing and equipping him to open your word to us and that we here this morning would be willing to hear and to apply. So God, we pray, breathe on us this morning uh, mm, when you be at work sorry. by the truth of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Um, for the recording, let's give um, Ian the biggest cheer you can, um, and then it sound like he's really impressive on the recording. So, uh, biggest cheer, three, two, one, go. That's good. I feel good. Uh, thank you, John. Okay, well, we're continuing our series this morning uh, called Joy in All Things from Paul's letter to the Philippians. And this morning... Um, we are about to go on to joyful obedience. Now, we've been defining joy as God's uh, being happy in God, happiness in God. But when I come to joyful obedience, that word obedience doesn't immediately fill me with happiness. It reminds me uh, particularly of a time where my mom would quite literally drag me to church as a child. We would go to the, the Church of Scotland at the top of our road. Uh, she'd drag me up and get me in, sitting on this uncomfortable pew, and I'd, I'd squirm around, and I'd just find it uh, really quite a painful experience. And um, They didn't sing this song, but if they, if they did sing this song, you know the song, You give me joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Don't worry, that's all I'm doing. No more singing. It's not my gift. Leave that for other people. Um, if they did, I'm pretty sure the minister would get up and he'd hold on to his pulpit and he'd lean over and he'd say something along the lines of, that's right, joy should remain down in your heart. <laughs> deep, deep, deep down in your heart. Children should be seen and not held. Can I get an amen to that? <laughs> amen. It was that kind of place, and it really didn't suit me. I was a sports-mad fidget. So my mom, my poor mom, had to rein me in the whole service. I'd be like moving around and squirming, and she would give me collect, like a little collection, 
I don't know if you parents do that still, but I used to get a collection, and um, it'd be for putting in when it came round, obviously, and I'd have my little coins, and I'd just play football with them. And then when it came to collection, I wouldn't want to give them away. Uh, it, was, it just felt like the whole thing was just so hard. And um, I remember when I left just feeling free. No freedom until you get out of the kirk. That's what it felt like. Um, for some people, that is all religion is. It is to try really, really hard at being good for an all-seeing and all-knowing God. And if it wasn't for extraordinary circumstances, that's what I would still believe. And I, honestly, I would have run as far away from the church as possible. But in the last kind of 20 or 30 years, a number of churches have decided that they would go in the opposite direction of that. They would react completely against that to a kind of lawlessness within the church where they would say, you know what, you don't really need to do anything anymore. Obedience, that's for the past. Don't worry, Jesus has died for you. You're free. You don't have to do anything. But of course, that's just as much of a, a distortion of the gospel as the first. So what do we do? Well, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Paul's letter to the Romans says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? To deliberately continue to do what God doesn't want us to do or to not do what he does want us to do is to throw grace back in his face. It's a one-way relationship. That is not a relationship at all, really. It's to take advantage of something and to not really understand what it's all about. What we'll see this morning is that actually this is all about a relationship. And we'll see that through Jesus, who has the perfect relationship with his Father, his Spirit-empowered relationship with him is the perfect example for joyful obedience. Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. This is such good news to me. The model for my life and for my joy is not the miserable minister in the Church of Scotland. The model is an extravagant, loving, amazing God who walked as a man upon the earth and did incredible things amongst desperate and needy people like me. That is such good news, guys. It is an exhilarating, glorious, and life-changing adventure. That's what joyful obedience is. Linda's going to come and read to us from um, Philippians 2, 12 through 18. And it, that's on page uh, 692. And what we'll see as we read through this, and as, as I preach through it, we'll see that we can live lives of joyful obedience as we learn to, one, be loved like Jesus, two, worship like Jesus, three, rely on the Spirit's power like Jesus, Four, 
work together like Jesus. And five, trust God for his promises like Jesus. That's right. It's a five-point sermon. We'll see how we get on. So, um, reading from Philippians 2, 12 uh, to 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights of the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Excellent. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, oh, thank you so much that you have given us an incredible example of joyful obedience. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're here with us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray now that you would come, you'd move amongst us, that you would speak to us, that, Lord, we would leave here changed because of your word. Lord, come now and meet us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's really important that we don't miss the first two words here. Therefore, beloved. Paul's inclusion of the word beloved tells us that grace and love precede any command that God ever gives us. Let's think on that for a moment. There is nothing that God will not ask you to do that is not preceded with his great love for you. Now, we, we see here that Paul, as a leader, speaks out of love as well. He says, therefore, beloved, he calls them beloved from himself. He loves them. So wherever we lead, we need to take on that example. We need to love first. Let's not ask people to do things just out of necessity or because we're just focused on tasks all the time, but because we love them, we know it's best for them, we know it's best for the team, we know it's best um, for them before God. Let's do it out of love. And the therefore links beloved back to the preceding text where we see that Jesus is set up as this example of what it is to be an obedient follower of God. It reminds the Philippians that before any command is given, their identity is not in a to-do list. It's being loved by the God who was willing to go to the cross, who was willing to empty himself, to step down from his throne in heaven, and was willing to even die for them. It's so easy to forget, isn't it? 
I've, I know I find it easy to forget day to day that there is a, an extraordinary love from God for me. God loves you so much. If we break down the word beloved, it means be loved. Simple, right? So the first command here is be loved. Do you need to remind you of that this morning? God loves you. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you. Not because you have done great things, but just because he loves you. You don't have to prove yourself for his love. He loves you anyway. You can trust God's outrageous love for you, and you can trust it because it begins with Jesus. In, John, uh, in 1 John, we read that uh, God loved us so much um, that uh, I'm, about to, I'm about to quote the wrong verse. Uh, and this is love, uh, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sin. I almost went to John 3.16. Um, but it was, it was it, first his love, not first our love, first his love. We didn't do anything to earn it. He first loved us. We can trust that he loves us. Generally, our inclination is to do, not to be. But we must inform every do with be. That is good news. We can live radical Christ-like lives of joyful obedience as we learn to be loved. At the end of verse 12, Paul says we should work out our salvation by fear and trembling. Now that seems a little strange on first read, especially that we've just heard that the rescue mission, salvation, doesn't depend on us. Paul and all his scripture is extraordinarily clear. Salvation is a gift from God achieved only through Jesus. Ephesians 2.8 couldn't be any clearer. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And in this letter, in chapter 1, verse 28, he says, uh, Paul says, God has saved them, not that they have saved themselves. So what does Paul mean? Well, the words interpreted as work out literally mean to produce something. It means to kind of like a piece of art. If you were to uh, work on a piece of art and then produce it and show all the people around you this beautiful piece of art, you have to produce something like that. But what is it we have to produce? Well, it's salvation, and it can't be salvation because, uh, that saves us. So what is it? Well, it's salvation's ultimate. It is the end of uh, everything that Jesus has done for us. And that is that Jesus will return to prove our salvation to the whole world. That coming kingdom, when Jesus returns and gives us our inheritance that he shares with us, that is the salvation that we have to show off. So what does it mean to work out your salvation? Well, it means that you are to literally show off what the coming kingdom, the new creation, might look like. And we can get a glimpse of that through Jesus 
and what is revealed in Scripture about what is to come. No more tears. Death gone forever. Defeated. We have to show these beautiful things off to people around us. Uh, Paul takes this language um, further still, and he says that we are to do it with fear and trembling. Again, this seems a little strange. I thought God was all loving. Why would we worship him or, or do anything for him in fear and trembling? I thought he invited us into his arms. I thought that he was our, our daddy, our father. Well, he is. He is. Let me explain. Paul takes this language about fear and trembling from a song written by Moses and his wife Miriam in Exodus 15. Now, Moses was probably the greatest leader in the Bible other than Jesus. Yet, it wasn't long until after this song that the people were standing outside of the promised land. God has promised them this incredible, fruitful land for them to live in. And they look in and they go, oh no, they look a bit scary. I don't, I don't know if we really want to go in at the moment because, well, I don't think that we could really win that land that God promised us. And they start to get scared. And so this song is used then and then on other occasions again and again and again to remind them that the God who saved them from Egypt were the greatest kingdom of its time led by the Pharaoh was defeated and brought to its knees by a God who led them out by fire and then who met with Moses on the mountain of fire. This mountain lit up with fire. And they saw from a distance that God was all-powerful. They were being reminded that that God was with them. So whatever challenge they faced as a nation, they were reminded that God is with them. But it also emphasizes not only that God is powerful and worthy of worship and that He is with them, it also reminds them of His great love for them and of His promises to them. It emphasizes that this is a God who is on their side. He's for them. He always has been, and He's proved it. He always will be. You can trust that when God asks you to do something, even if it seems impossible to do, he's with you and he can do it. We are to be so concerned out of our response to his incredible love and power that we are to worship him with fear and trembling. That we would shake before him in our want to do his will. Because he's powerful, yes, but because he's with us and because he loves us, let's shake before him as we come to him and worship him. It's from that position that Jesus gives us the most perfect example of obedience in the facing of a seemingly impossible situation. The night Jesus is arrested, um, he's waiting in the darkness of the garden. Just less than six months before that, Luke records that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And just after that, we begin to see that 
he explains to the disciples what's going to happen. He starts talking about it in parables. So he's prepared. He knows what's coming. Jesus is very aware that he's about to be arrested and that he's about to be arrested so that they could put him to death on a cross. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows that he is that curse on the tree. So as he waits, these same disciples, they are betraying him. They're falling asleep. They're denying him. He's on his own. And he cries out to God, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus is sweating blood as the weight of the world is on his shoulders. Yet, he continues, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Lord, your will be done. That is pure, holy, obedient worship. That is what it is to fall down in fear and trembling before a God who in his great love asks us to do some very difficult things that are always, in the end, good for us, good for others, bring him glory and bring us joy. I'm sure many of you have had moments a little like that where you've been asked to do something by God and you just think, really? Give up that job? Give up that relationship? Move to another country? Really? For me, one of those moments came when um, I'd uh, been playing rugby uh, professionally. I kind of it was one of my great dreams was to play rugby professionally. So I've been doing it for about a year, and um, I was offered a new contract. So all my friends around me and uh, family are saying, oh, this is wonderful, such good news. Can't wait to see where this takes you. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? I, I'm no Johnny Wilkinson. I wasn't going to set the rugby, fu- rugby world on fire, all right? But I loved what I was doing. It was, it's this incredible opportunity, and in the world's eyes, it would be mad not to take that opportunity. But at the same time, I felt God saying, I don't want you to take that contract. I want you to go and study theology. I want to raise you up as a church leader. I want to work on your life and, and uh, bring you into a place where uh, you're going to be leading in churches. I thought, what? That's mad. Lord, rugby's amazing. I know that you gave it because it's so good. But I knew that he was saying I was to go to Bible college and study theology. So I did. People thought I was mad. But it brought me great joy in the end, knowing that he was in control and that I could serve him and, and be close with him. To to choose to run away from that, I know wouldn't have brought me joy. It would have taken me on a trajectory somewhere totally different. Not because rugby's bad. It's great. I'm thankful that some Christians are called to that. But it wasn't what I was called to. And I know that you guys will have had moments like that. It is worth it. We can live lives of joyful obedience as we learn to worship like Jesus. He is more powerful than anything you face. And he is worthy 
of your trust and praise. When Moses met, met with uh, God on Mount Sinai, the people had to keep their distance from God's holy presence, or, he said, they would surely die. But, thankfully there's a but, here's some very good news. When Jesus was willing to trust God the Father to go to the cross and take the punishment of our sin, which is what kept us separated from that holy presence, which kept it at a distance from us, at that point, he dealt with our sin and no longer did that power and presence have to be so far away from us. In fact, after Jesus was resurrected and ascended, he did exactly what he promised to do. He poured out his spirit at a festival in Jerusalem called Pentecost. And what came down on them? Not in a di- at a distance, but on them was flames of tongues, wasn't it? Fire. That same presence of God, that mighty power that was too far away, that was distant, that they couldn't go near without dying, was now resting on them. Previously, that terrifying presence of God was by nature opposed to us sinners. But now, now that Jesus has dealt with our sin, he pours out his spirit on his church. The church was born there. And we sit today here filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the presence of God. So it is God in you that works and wills. That's what Paul says. That's why Paul says they are to shine like stars in a crooked and depraved generation. They have become the bright pillar of fire at night, the city on a hill shining bright for all to see. Not because of their effort alone, but because of the power of God at work in them. Some of you have come here exhausted this morning, and the thought of joyful obedience is wild to you. You having a laugh? Joyful obedience? Are you kidding? I can't be, I can't find joy in my failures of trying to be a good mom or a good dad, a good son, a good daughter, a good brother, a good sister, a good friend, a good church member, a good missionary. It's all too much. I can't be obedient anymore. I can't do this. You'd be right. You can't do this. You can't. But God who lives in you, he can he can do this. Yes, we're to make every effort to be obedient, but our strength and power comes from God. Some of you don't even feel like you want to be obedient anymore. Well, thankfully, Paul says in verse 13, even our will to be obedient is from God. Elsewhere, Paul says, it is Christ in you the hope of glory. So while you rely on your own strength to will and to work, you cannot do it. But when you rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be all that God has made you to be. In Glasgow, I spent uh, almost five years as an associate pastor in a Baptist church uh, in a place called Renfrew. And uh, one of my uh, mandates was, go reach the town for Jesus 
with young people. And uh, so I did. I gave it my all. I just tried with all my might. I just did everything I could possibly even think of doing. Okay, we're going to try all these crazy ideas. We're going to work really hard and try and get people in. We didn't see any fruit. Didn't see anything really happening. Just hard slog. I realized one day, I've been trying to do this in my own strength. This is stupid. This is crazy. We even did crazy things like um, we went down to the skate park, um, the local skate park, and we brought as many cans of iron brew as we could. Okay? We sat, and me and my, the senior pastor sat in these uh, picnic chairs, chatted to these guys, handed out iron brew, built a barbie or brought a barbecue, and um, lit up as many bar- uh, burgers as we, as we could. One day, unfortunately, we tried so hard that the fire brigade came. But we won't talk too much about that. It was good. Like, it was great. We had loads of good chats with people. But again, no fruit. We didn't see God doing incredible things. We didn't see these guys coming to faith. But as soon as, as, soon as we realized we've been just working at this so hard without relying on the power of the presence of God, and we brought it to him in prayer, suddenly coincidences started to happen. Suddenly, we saw that a family came into the church who happened to be a pivotal family. To begin with, we only had two families in the church, so we had hardly any connections. And so they came in, and they had lots of connections, and they brought their friends, and then we had another couple come into the church who were able to uh, help us with leading the young people, and they were fantastic people, great leaders, really helped us develop other leaders as well. And then um, we also began to uh, see the gates open for us to go and work in schools. And so we worked in a local primary school, and we worked in a a local high school, and we began something called the studio, because our relationship with the local primary school was so good that they said, look, we've got a massive waiting list for social work um, uh, help, that uh, for particularly for um, a People who were kind of young people who were on the edge of needing a little bit of help with homework and things like that. So we put on this thing called the studio, and we had homework club run at the same time as some fun kind of games and all sorts of things going on. It was amazing, and God just really blessed it and grew it really quickly. But it was nothing, really was nothing to do with us. Because when we gave it everything we had, but weren't relying on God, nothing was happening. But when we we're giving it everything we had, but relying wholly on his power and him doing the work. Suddenly, stuff started to happen. We need to rely on God for whatever we're doing. It is his power at us, whether it's relationships or it's ministries or whatever it is. We need him in every way. Charles Spurgeon said, The saints shall persevere in holiness because God perseveres in grace. It is only in God's power that we have the strength to carry on. We can live lives of joyful obedience only as we learn to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 14, Paul continues to borrow language from the Israelites' journey in the wilderness, this time from Deuteronomy. He implores the Christians to stop grumbling and complaining. The Israelites had stopped looking to God. Now, what happens when you stop looking to God? You start looking to each other. And as great a group as you all seem, I'm sure 
that if you spent enough time looking at each other without looking up, you're going to start grumbling and complaining. Because we're not perfect, are we? We mess things up. I certainly mess things up. I don't want to give you expectations that I'm somehow some perfect person who's come onto staff. Not at all. I will mess things up. There will be times where maybe you'll get very frustrated with me because I forgot to do something or this didn't happen. And I implore you, look to God and I'll try and do my best to be obedient. That's what we need to do, isn't it? Keep looking to God. Let's not look to each other for the answers, but instead we need to work together. When I uh, left school, I was rugby mad and um, I'd been uh, given a few offers from a few teams and um, in the end decided on a team near Glasgow. And I really decided on the team because they were like, hey, you can play in our first 15, we'll guarantee you a spot. And the other teams weren't willing to do that. So I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> I'll go there. Um, went along and it only took one game for me to realize why they said that I could have a spot. <laughs> we got absolutely thumped in our first game. By Christmas, we'd lost just about every game and the newspapers were saying, these guys are down. There's not even any point in them being in the league that they're down already. This is a waste of time. And so on the Tuesday night, we turned up for training after that game, after a game where we got particularly thumped, um, and we expected that our coach would tear into us, just shout and bawl. Instead of doing that, he laid down the newspaper reports. He said, look, guys, here's the thing. No one else is going to help us. So he put, pulled in all the backroom staff as well. And we looked around the room and said, look, this is up to us. If we want to stay up, which we can still do, we need to work hard for one another. We need to work out a vision that we can uh, work towards as we try and stay up. And so we did. It took us three or four hours. We were very honest with each other. There were some uh, choice words. And um, we began to shift the culture. We started working for each other instead of playing as individuals all the time. We won our last nine out of our last ten games. We stayed up, and the newspapers started asking the question, will they win the league next year? They were in such good form. Ridiculous turnaround, and it was not because we were brilliant. It was because we decided we were going to do this together, work hard for each other, sacrifice, and each of us had a role, and we knew a role, and we worked hard at it. So the same is true in any team, but particularly in the church. Paul gives us this incredible uh, image in Ephesians 4 of a body, and he says, Christ is the head, so he's your team captain, but the rest of you are all parts, and you've all got a part to play. One of you might be a hand, one of you might be a mouth. One of you might be an ear. But you all have a part to play so that the body works properly. One of us might be an evangelist. One of us might be uh, an administrator or a prophet, a preacher. Maybe your gift is in hospitality. All of these and much more are vital if we are to shine like Jesus did in his generation in ours. Each of us needs encouraged in our gifts and our roles. We've got a members meeting tonight, so here's my challenge to you, okay? If you've seen someone doing something over the last few months, and you've not already gone up to them and said, hey, well done, 
Thank you so much for working so hard for us. Thank you that you're on my team. I really appreciate that you're on my team. I really appreciate what God's doing in you. So I, w- I challenge you, go and find someone to do that. Whether it's after in coffee or it's tonight at the members meeting, find someone and say, just say thank you. We can shine like stars in Poole and Bournemouth and beyond if we are united in our mission to be like Jesus, if we work together, if we help one another, we can live lives of joyful obedience as we learn to do it together. Okay, don't worry, last point. Here we go. Remember, Paul asked the Philippian church to work out their salvation, and we said that that was about living out the coming kingdom where Jesus is Lord. Well, Paul continues to bang that very important drum. In fact, in some ways, it, it's, a, it's the rhythm of the Christian life to believe in God's promises and act in faith. That's really what he's saying. And he says we can be poured out like drink offerings and still find joy. So what does he mean by that, being poured out like drink offerings? Well, it is what it sounds like. They would take uh, the Israelites on a Sabbath day only in the land of Israel, because it was a sign that God had given them plenty in the land of Israel, in the promised land, and they would pour out their choicest wine on the ground, and it would absorb into the ground. And they pour it all out. It seems crazy, right? Well, that's what they do. It's a sacrifice to God to say, yeah, God, we trust you. We thank you. We know that this is from you. And not only did it point to the fact that God had delivered his promises of a promised land, But it also pointed forward to the true promised land, the ultimate Sabbath, the ultimate rest day, which is the new creation. And so when they were pouring this out, they were thinking, one day we will be in perfection with Jesus. We'll be in perfection with God. So for the church, it was we'll be in perfection with Jesus. And so when Paul's saying, we're going to, I'm going to be poured out, me, myself, I can be poured out like a drink offering and still be vindicated at the end and still have joy. What he's saying is actually, because God's promises are true, when Jesus returns and I see him face to face, every single act of obedience will be vindicated. Every single act of obedience we know will have its reward in heaven. That's good news, right? Hold firmly to that promise. When it's hard to be obedient, hold firmly to that promise. I did not run or labor in vain, is what you will be able to say. But you have a choice. You can chase what this world has to offer from temporal pleasures with a disastrous end. Or you can trust God and you can shine like stars for Jesus and enjoy him forever. That's our choice. Guys, we can give everything to God and still know joy, still be happy in God. It's worth it. Do you want to live a life of joyful obedience? Be loved. Rely on the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. Pursue obedience together and hold tightly 
See God's promises for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have come, that you have rescued us. That not only have you rescued us, but you have poured out your spirit on us. You've given us a great example of what it is to be obedient. You've given us a great example of what it is to still have joy in your obedience. And thank you, Lord, that you will return. You will come in all your glory. And you will look to us and you will say, yes, come to me, my good and faithful servant. Lord, help us now to be good and faithful servants by the power of your Holy Spirit. We know we can't do it alone. We need your power. Come, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't we pick that up? Can we stand together? Let's continue just to enjoy God's presence for us to be able to walk in joyful obedience. We need to enjoy God. So um, I wonder if we can just open our hands and we'll invite the Spirit to come. I wonder if we have the rest of the musicians back up. That'd be brilliant. And let's just be, be open. We say, Holy Spirit, come.